Yeah. Anyway, I got uh, two things as we as we begin. Normally, we hit summertime, which I know it's still a little bit away from summer because it's still April, but the weather's smelling nice. Seriously, first and second service this morning, though, man, it was just overcast. Everybody feels like I'm so depressed. It's drizzly. It's cold. I wore a short sleeve shirt. It's terrible. Anyway, but summer's coming. Yeah, don't feel bad for me. It's okay. I'll get over it. Um, and normally during summer, we do this thing called film and theology, where we take some movies you know, throughout the year, and we show them like every other week during the summer, and we talk about the theological aspect behind all of these movies. Because if, there, if you read a book and, or watch a movie or a TV show, there's words in it. That means there's a message being given to you. And so what we do is we walk through these about how the gospel relates to you know, the different views that the writers and directors may have had in a movie. Now, typically like Mikey or me or James or Donald, we do these things, and they're all like sci-fi. And, you know, we do this, hey, let's do this great old, you know, Mask of the Phantasm, Under the Red Hood. You don't even know what I'm talking about. And that just shows what we're, t- it's like 10 people show up. Uh, and then we did the Hunger Games. And it's like the room is packed. Who knew <laughs> that people loved shaky cam and full face shots an entire movie? So we did that. The room is just packed for the Hunger Games. So we're like, you know, maybe we should do like new movies, right? So what we're going to do is if there's movies that have been in the theater or in the theater now that you would like to do throughout the rest of the year, maybe once a month, we're going to do like a film and theology. So like the week a movie is released on Blu-ray or DVD or download, whatever, you know, we'll, we'll watch it that week. So if you have a movie you'd really like us to do, there's a, a number right there. It's our Google Voice number. It actually goes and sends text to our Google Voice stuff. So if you want to, you can text that number right there, like a movie that you want. And don't, don't be like, you know, oh, when I was five years old, I saw this movie. It was really cool. You should do this because you'd be the only one that's here. <laughs> and, or you wouldn't. You just do it, and then we'd oh, we'll do that movie, and then you wouldn't even show up. So it'd just be awful. So if you want to, you know, like, oh, Iron Man's gonna. We're probably gonna do Iron Man. We're probably gonna do a Man of Steel. New that Superman movie looks really cool. Just throwing it out there. I don't know why. Uh, second thing I want to tell you about is uh, Tuesday. If you're going to go out to eat on Tuesday, it's like, oh, I need to go out to eat somewhere. Go to Applebee's. Grab a flyer in the back. At 15% of your meal will go to help the youth go to camp. And, but you need the flyer. You can't just show up and be like, oh, I'm here for the element youth. Because if you do, they're like, oh, sucker. Yeah, apparently, they want you to chop down a tree in order to get them a discount. So grab a piece of paper out of the back. Take it with you. With you. There. You good? All right, welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. I got to do this for the video, by the way, and this will now be on the video. <laughs> like, what? Sorry, I'll start over, Paul. Ready? Okay. <laughs> welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on Live. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. If you're watching somewhere that's not here, type in 9345455, and it will bring us up by zip code in your smartphone. You get sermon notes and verses and all that goes along with that. Watch down. You're into God's Word. This is Genesis 43, verse 16. And it says, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare dinner. They are to eat with me at noon. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would teach us as a people what it means to live in hospitality, that we would show the great grace that you have already given to us, to those around us, that we'd be lifting you up by how we live lives and and invite people into them as well. Amen. Have a seat. So uh, this is week 64 of the book of Genesis. We are down to the final 10 messages, and we will be done. If you are new, I recommend you go home, download all previous 63, and listen to them tonight. (laughs) 
Actually, you couldn't. It'd be over 24 hours. So if you have a couple days straight, you could actually listen to them. Uh, you can get them on our website. You can podcast them. You can get video or audio. I would recommend personally just the audio because you don't want to look at this all that time. Uh, today, uh, we're going to end different than kind of where we're starting, but it's something I want to talk about for the last few weeks with you. And I had to wait till we got past the meal from last week and into the part where Joseph starts to reveal himself this week. And it's all over a meal, hopefully ending in a place where you realize that God has revealed himself to you and I as well over a meal that we look at every week in this idea of communion. So we're going to run through the text. We'll talk about a meal and how true, meaningful relationships get built. I know it's a tall task. I'm professional. Just go with me. We'll, we'll figure it out. Uh, this is a, an amazing thing about this whole idea with meals because this is what Joseph does with his brothers when he doesn't even know, they don't even know he's their brother. They thought he was dead because 21 plus years prior, they threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. And how in the world would the second most powerful man in the world actually be that brother, right? Okay. Much more engaging than last service, even though three of you just answered me. Okay. Uh, <laughs> The text is constantly trying to show you the difference in Joseph's character versus that of his brothers. When, when the brothers sell him into slavery, they throw him in a pit. They leave him to starve. They eat right outside the pit. When Joseph brings them into Egypt, into his house, he actually eats with them. It's this whole idea and the difference of their two types of personalities. Now, there's been a lot of carnage in Joseph's life. As a pastor, for me, it's hard to see sometimes the destruction that happens in people's lives. I get a front row seat to all of it. I could go the rest of my life without ever having to hear about a molested kid or another mother who abandons their children or a dad who abuses his wife and his kids, someone who's been betrayed by a friend, an unfaithful spouse, a kid who runs away, maybe you know people who you thought you should trust and you no longer know that you can. And for people who say things like, well, I don't believe in sin really you should have my job for one day the things that people do to each other are simply horrendous but the beautiful part of what i get to see also in my job is jesus i get to see him step in and redeem and reclaim and make all kinds of difference in people's lives he puts everything back together again that's part of what makes my job completely worth it and you see all those things the carnage in joseph's life but also god putting everything back together again if you missed it joseph dominates genesis for 12 plus chapters creation gets two chapters joseph gets over 12 it's kind of amazing he's the fourth generation of one of the most important families that has ever lived he goes abraham to his son isaac to his son jacob takes a while to figure jacob out and straighten him out he's got four wives that's three too many in case you were wondering he's got 13 kids and eventually God takes and he moves and he changes him. And then he changes his name to Israel. The nation of Israel today is actually named after this guy. Jacob has two children by the one wife he actually loved. Joseph was one of those children. It's like a modern family. you got half-brothers and step-brothers and family fighting and in-laws and outlaws, And it's all just kind of together. God blesses Joseph. His brothers get jealous. They sell him into slavery. But he serves well as a slave. But as a slave, his master's wife says, hey, he's kind of hot. Why don't you go to bed with me? And Joseph says, no. She then accuses him of rape. And then he spends his later teens and his 20s in prison. And then what happens is Pharaoh has a dream that only a Christian can interpret and go figure there's only one in the country. And that's Joseph. And this dream has seven really good-looking cows and seven gaunt, skinny, supermodel-looking cows. This is about feast and famine. What's the nation going to do? And Joseph said, this is how you're going to take care and make sure your nation survives. And they say, that's a great idea. You do it. 
and then he becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. During that same time, the famine reaches up to where Joseph's family is living, and so his dad sends ten's brother, ten brothers down to Egypt to get food. When they get there, they don't recognize Joseph. He looks Egyptian. He speaks Egyptian. They don't know it's him, but he knows it's them. And Joseph uses that opportunity to start to test his brothers. Christians, we should be quick to forgive, quick to love, but sometimes you are very slow to trust. As a matter of fact, in John 2.24, it says, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Yes, he offered them redemption and grace and hope, but trust takes a whole lot of time. Joseph runs his brothers through two years of tests before he trusts them. Too many people, they jump into relationships and jumps into marriages and jumps into jobs or friendships. Churches put leaders in place way too fast. It is okay to test and okay to take time. Bible open to Genesis 44. And so this is now Joseph's brother's second trip to Egypt. Last week, what you saw is Joseph brings them in and he shares a meal with them. And this meal leads to where we're going, which is going to be the reveal in the end of who he was. The chapter 43 ends with the eight and they drink and they were merry. They have a really good time and they go to bed. Chapter 44 is when they wake up. 44 verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, and that is actually Joseph's old job when he worked for Potiphar, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain and he did as joseph told him so he's setting them up for one more test as soon as the morning was light the men were sent away with their donkeys so last week they didn't get donkey jacked they got to keep them and they're leaving on their donkeys they had gone only a short distance from the city now joseph said to his steward up follow after the men and when you have overtaken them say to them why have you repaid evil for good is it not from this that's the the cup that my lord drinks and by this that he practices divination you have done evil in doing this what he does he's going to accuse them of stealing his his Harry Potter sorting hat or his sword of Gryffindor or the goblet of fire. Okay, you, you stole my, my mug. Now, this would have been used like tarot cards or Ouija board or tea leaves, seeking demons to find out the truth about things. You've got to understand, Joseph's not that type of guy, but all of his brothers would assume that all Egyptians were like that. So he's, he's taking this ruse and he's running with it. Verse 6. When he overtook them, he spoke these words, that you stole my Harry Potter goblet to them. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we put back... We brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Like last time we came, we, we found the extra money. We brought double back to pay you. We're trying to be people of integrity. We apologize. They're probably feeling a little self-righteous at this point. Every time we come here, you accuse us of doing something we're not doing. And so because they feel self-righteous, they say something really stupid. They say, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. That is not something you should say, okay? A cop pulls you over, you say, you were speeding. You don't go, no, I wasn't. And if I was, you can kill me and take my family as slaves. It's a little too much, all right? Verse 10, he said, let it be as you say, because the guy knows the goblet's there. He's like, that's a good idea. We'll go with your idea. Terrible. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, because they all think they're innocent. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. This is the youngest. This is the one their dad loves. This is Joseph's 100% brother. And they're going to see this brother might be stripped away from them. They're losing him. 
Joseph is testing to see. You sold me into slavery. You wanted to get rid of me, so what are you going to do? Have you changed? Will they fight for Benjamin? Next verse says, then they tore their clothes. They had an incredible Hulk moment. They went, rah! No, actually what it is is this is an idea of mourning and pain and loss. They're dealing with some pain that's coming to them. And every man loaded his donkey and returned to where? The city. They returned to the city. They love this brother. This is life change. They don't abandon him. They're probably also thinking about their dad. Man, my dad can't lose this kid as well. You know, parents who lose a kid, they go through intense pain. I mean, Jacob lost Joseph, and it nearly killed him. I'm assuming that Jacob probably spent time worshiping with Joseph, probably spent time loving with him and praying with him. He's teaching Joseph the family business. And right when Joseph's getting to the age where dad can also be friend, that's when Joseph is stripped away. And I think that Jacob probably went through now the process with Benjamin again, and now he's going to maybe lose Benjamin. That's going to kill Jacob. I'll tell you, when I was growing up, my mom, she thought she lost me lots of times. I'm always lost in a hole in a ditch, you know, bleeding, something going on. One time, she comes out, she's looking for me for hours, and I'm sitting on top of the roof with my feet hanging inside the chimney. So I'm thinking, how does Santa get down this thing? And I'm like... One, two, okay, wait, hold on, okay, one, two, you know, I'm like five, right? So she comes out, she finds me, drags me off the roof, and she spanks me to show her joy. I don't get it. I really don't, really don't. What Joseph is doing is he's putting his brothers through a crucible of honesty to see what they're going to do. Verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground again. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? It doesn't say Joseph did practice divination. He's keeping up the ruse. He goes, I can find out what's going on even without my Harry Potter goblet. I know what's going on. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, that's Joseph, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. What happens is one man now is going to step forward to speak on behalf of the family, the brothers, the dad, all of them. And this is Judah. Judah is the fourthborn, though now he has the firstborn blessing. Reuben, the firstborn, had sex with one of his stepmoms. That disqualifies him from the firstborn blessing. Simeon and Levi are vicious, angry, evil thugs. They are disqualified from the firstborn blessing. This now falls in line to Judah. And Judah steps up to speak, and he takes on this mantle. And I wonder what Joseph thought. He's like, hey. Well, that's new. You know, that guy right there. Because Joseph's no, Judah was not a good guy the last time he saw him. He's the one in charge of the plot to sell Joseph into slavery. He puts blood on Joseph's coat to send back to Joseph's dad. Then Judah moves out of town because he can't send enough around his own family. He goes to get a hellion buddy who lives in Napomo, and they light fireworks all night, and they watch wrestling and drink all the time, and just it's stupid. He has a couple sons, and, and they're so wicked that God takes them out. He sleeps with a prostitute, not knowing it's his daughter-in-law. Then all this comes up, and boom, it's sitting in front of his face around a whole bunch of other people, and, and Judah doesn't run from it. Judah says, you know what? That's my sin. I own that right there. And he starts to begin to change. That's his transformation. He becomes the next leader of this family because God can actually change people. God does that. Too often, I think, in our culture today, what's seen as depression is simply guilt over sin. You know, sometimes you feel bad because you are bad. Now, I, I think sometimes there can be chemical imbalances, and sometimes it can be medical. But if it's like, oh, I'm cheating on my husband, or I'm stealing from my boss, I'm depressed. You should be. 
Okay, you should be depressed over that. Well, I want to feel better. Then change. Change. Too often in our culture, we want to feel good, but nobody wants to be good. You know what? We need to change. We need to actually own our sin and say, this is what's going on. I need to change. Your sin will affect your emotional state. Judah is a guy. He gets saved. He meets Jesus. He changes. And now he steps up and talks from his heart. This is the new Judah. You can say, this is Judah who is born again. Verse 18. Then Judah went up and said to him, and this is one of the longest speeches in the Genesis narrative, and essentially it's, I was a failure, but no more. That's like the cliff notes, but I'll read you the whole thing. All right. Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. Let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. He's kissing up. Joseph has his own jail, so it's okay to kiss up when somebody has their own job. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Now, he's just being honest. My dad loves this kid more than any of the rest of us. He's just being honest. Verse 21, Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. It's like, my dad didn't want him to go. We talked him into it. I have failed my dad our entire lives, and I cannot fail him again. This would kill him. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And it's funny that Jacob only refers to one of those wives. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since. And that is key information that Judah just lets out to Joseph. Joseph was thinking, you know, I thought my dad loved me. We spent all this time together. And if he really loved me, well, why didn't he come and rescue me out of prison? Why didn't he come and get me out of slavery? And my, you know, my great-grandfather Abraham got an army to rescue his knuckleheaded cousin Lot. You know, what's the deal with that? And my dad won't even come and save me. What he finds out right here is his dad thought he was dead. And this is probably makes Joseph go, my dad does love me. You know, for you and I, this is one of the reasons we can't go off half-cocked. You don't jump to conclusions. You wait to hear the whole story. I mean, Joseph's like, my dad just didn't know. He says, if you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you'll bring down my gray hairs and evil to shield. So Jacob says, if this one goes and dies, then you know what? I will go to bed and I will never get up again. Verse 30. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to shoal. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Judah says, It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about my dad. I have always given my dad grief. You know, I, I dated girls he didn't like. I never did my homework. I drank all the time. I never did well in school. I married a non-Christian. I cannot break his heart again. Then one of the most remarkable statements in the book of Genesis, verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. He says, let your servant remain instead of the boy. Theologically, this is a concept that we call substitution. And it is proposed by a guy named Judah. This is the total difference in his life. When Jesus comes, you know what tribe he's descended from? Judah. 
Exactly. Judah's starting to think like Jesus. This is the changed man. If you're going to punish him, punish me instead. Let me substitute myself for him. I will not abandon Benjamin. And so Joseph is seeing how Judah's going to respond. He responds totally different than before. Rather than saying, yeah, kill him, keep him as your slave, we're out of here, see ya. Rather than doing that, he says, I will die for him. When Jesus comes from the line of Judah, he dies for you and I. The question becomes is how is Joseph going to respond to this? This has been two years of trials and testing going on. And now what Joseph does is he reveals himself. Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. He does this because he's about to cry, and dudes shouldn't really cry in front of a whole lot of people. Maybe if you get a nail gun through your foot, boom, then you can cry in front of a lot of people, right? But this is like, he's going to cry. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And that's where we're ending the text this week, okay? Just right there, you're like, what? No. Give me the rest. You'll get it next week. You'll, you'll be fine. What I want to deal with in this is last week you had the idea of the meal, and that was about forgiveness and reconciliation, and I need to get you to the point of the reveal to bring these things together. I've been wanting to talk to you guys for weeks about this, but I had to get these two things together. This whole process that starts at a meal and ends in the reveal. This is the beginnings of friendship. It comes full circle in the reveal. And this is something that God has always intended meals to do for us. And again, I cannot fully flesh this out in just a few minutes. I have here, I'd recommend you pick up a book by Tim Chester called A Meal with Jesus. It's discovering grace, community, and mission around the table. And throughout the scriptures, there's a connection between meals and what they eventually lead to in the reveal. This is one of the reasons throughout the whole entire Testament, God always had feast days for his people. You have a feast. Why? Because you get together, you eat, God reveals himself to you, you reveal yourself to each other, and you live a life in community. You know, when Abraham is going to be promised, you'll have the son by this time next year, God shows up for a meal at the Oaks of Mamre. The whole culmination of the kingdom of heaven is inaugurated by a meal that God shares with his children. Meals are very important in the scriptures because they're supposed to lead to this revelation of you and I to each other and God to us. Why are meals so important throughout the scriptures? Number one, meals were seen as an act of grace. As an act of grace. When Jesus came, he called people to follow him. This would be tax collectors. Okay, tax collectors are traitors to their country. I know we still feel that same way today, right? You work for the IRS? Right? Holy water on you. You know, what's going on? There's zealots. He called zealots. Zealots are people who would hang out in the hills, didn't have a large enough army to fight the Romans. So when the Romans went by, like a couple on the street, they'd be like, oh, and they'd jump out of the hills, whack, 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 and they'd run up and, and hide back in the hills. He called those people. Uh, he called Pharisees, people who thought they were better than anybody else. He called prostitutes. You all know what they do. He called sinners. Like sinners is like this whole lump of people. It's like people in boy bands and people who make pop-up ads on the internet and send you spam and things like, well, if you don't forward this to 10 people, you don't really love Jesus. Those people, sinners. It's all of us, okay? All of us get lumped in that whole idea of sinners. And what Jesus normally does when he calls people, he invites them to a meal with him and he reveals who he is. Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 15, it's the story of the prodigal son who runs off and he, the son comes home. And what does the father do? He has a gigantic meal when the son comes home. Really, the story of the prodigal son should not be called the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of the father. It's all about the father and the story and the meal that he has. He shows kindness and hospitality like Jesus shows kindness and hospitality he reveals himself like joseph reveals himself to his brothers after this meal meals are about grace do you understand that food is way better than it actually needs to be 
I mean, God could have just made one thing, follow this guy or grow on every tree, and it looks and tastes like dog food, but it's enough nutrients for you. Have you ever eaten dog food? Salty wheat crackers, all right? So you make your dog eat it and you won't even try it? It's not going to kill you. I've eaten it. <laughs> I know. That's all you're getting out of the message today. You're going to be home. I can't believe he ate dog food. That's all you're thinking. <laughs> Let it pass. Just hear the message. God made variety. He loves taste. It, it's grace. The quality of food should matter to us. If you have kids, don't order every meal to them from McDonald's. I mean, seriously, you're supposed to make good food. If you have friends, pizza's okay every once in a while, but get together with good ingredients and make things together. It's about making something good. In Genesis 1 and 2, it's kind of this whole idea. It's a sort of menu that it shows about all this food that's actually there. And this is something completely dinner, different about the Genesis narrative. It's that God gave us food. In, in pagan religion at this time, people were there, and you thought to provide for the gods. That's what you do. But the Genesis tells you that God is the one who gave us grace. He is the one that provides food for humanity. Idols demand we meet their new needs. Our God meets our needs. That is grace. It's why we share meals. Why is a meal so important in scriptures? Because meals were seen as an act of community. Jesus welcomes, he creates space, he listens to people, he provides for people. Joseph does this, he creates space, he gets to know his brothers. Meals will make you slow down, actually have a conversation. It's how Joseph gets to know his brothers were genuine. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, Christian community is not an ideal we have to realize, but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we participate. It's a reality, it's already there, we just participate within it. Meals shape and they reshape relationships in terms of friendship. It's one of the reasons the scriptures tell us that God will throw a great banquet for his children. You know, even elders in a church, a requirement for eldership to be a pastor is you've got to be hospitable. you actually got to like people and hang out with them. It says in 1 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.8, Romans 16.23. A lot of churches that they hire a pastor, they, they have like a, a job requirement list. Almost nowhere on this job requirement list that I've ever seen is something that says, got to be hospitable. Even though that's what the Bible says, you've got to be hospitable. Why are meals so important? Because meals are about enacted hope. When Jesus comes, he's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Elijah is seen in the person of John the Baptist. Jesus is like the new Moses. 800 years before Jesus shows up, Isaiah in chapter 25, verses 6 through 9, he proclaims this great banquet that's going to culminate in the person of Christ. Verse 9 ends this with, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That comes after the meal. And the reveal. This is the joy of meals. This is one of the reasons when we do communion, we remember who Christ is in communion. The revealed Savior to the world in a meal. Isaiah 55 talks about God's provision for his people who cannot buy what they really need. And you see, Joseph does this. He provides for his brothers without taking their money. They didn't know how to react as we don't know how to react to God's gracious gift for us. We want to turn and make it all about works. You know, Jesus provides for us through the cross, resurrection, what we cannot buy and what we truly need. Why is a meal so important in the scriptures? Because meals are about mission. They're about mission. It is reaching and loving and sharing and hosting. The scriptures constantly speak about the poor, the blame, the, 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 the lame, the crippled, blind, lame. Did I say blind or blame? Blind, lame, crippled, all these. That's God's view of all of us. I mean, seriously, we are the spiritually poor. We have nothing to offer for our salvation. We are the spiritually crippled. We are made powerless by sin. We are the spiritually blind. We are unable to see the truth about Jesus. We are the spiritually lame. We are unable to come to God on our own, and God has always been on a mission to save his people. 
And we remember this every week in this meal called communion. We're supposed to be Ephesians 5.1. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Live a life of love. We're to be on a mission to call people to repentance, to offer grace and hope and love and life. You do this in a ton of ways, but one of the main ways is also through a meal. Joseph does this with his brothers. They are destitute. They are in starving. They are in need of salvation. Joseph shares a meal with them. He reveals himself to them, and he saves them all. Why are meals so important in the scriptures? Because meals are a symbol of enacted salvation. Like, what? That's a little bit much, don't you think? No. You know, baked potatoes and salad and bread and grilled veggies and tri-tip. Heaven has shone down its light on the central coast and said, let there be tri-tip. And we said, thank you, Jesus. It is about laughing and sharing news and passing food and getting to know each other. It's why you say grace before a meal. It's not, oh, God, thanks for this food. You thank God for his provision, but also what it does. When Jesus enacts the Last Supper, which we celebrate weekly in this idea of communion, It looks back to this idea of Passover, when God brings his people out to freedom. But it also looks to the fulfillment of all the scriptures promised in Isaiah 25 of how life is really meant to be. In this meal and the reveal of God, you and I living together. See, before the fall, in Genesis 1 and 2, you know one of the main ways that we expressed obedience to God was through food, through what trees we ate from. Today, eating continues to express a dependence on God and our submission to him and his good reign over us. Some societies, when they come to America to visit, they are horrified by the way we eat our food. It's like you drive up and you, and you order from a high school kid through a clown. And they have issues with that. Because then you drive around and you say, I'm eating on the go all the time. And you know, every once in a while, fine, eat on the go, whatever. But you're not supposed to eat all of your meals like that. You're supposed to slow down with them. When you view food just as fuel, it strips it of what it's meant to be. It's to remind you of God's goodness and his giftedness. Denying that food is a gift is one of the processes that slowly makes us begin to forget the giver. I think it's one of the reasons that God didn't make us, that he makes us eat, that we just don't walk outside and get all of our sustenance from the sun, like plant photosynthesis. You know, we actually have to eat something because it reminds us of our dependence on him and not our independence from him. See, when God brings Israel out of slavery, he takes them to this mountain called Sinai. He takes 70 elders up on the mountain with him, and it says, where they beheld God and they ate and drank in Exodus 24, verse 11. God has a meal with his people to reveal himself. He starts them with the meal in Passover, brings them out, and the Sinai eats with them again. That whole idea of redemption becomes embodied in a meal with God. Why are meals so important in the scriptures? Because meals are about enacted promise. The risen Jesus in Luke 24 eats with his disciples. The physicality of Jesus is not canceled out because of the resurrection. The resurrection is the promise of the beginning of the renewal of all things. What we talked about two weeks ago at Easter. The future, it is physical and spiritual. We are, we are told that we will enjoy cooking and fermenting and brewing. In Isaiah 25, verse 6, I think this is dialed for eternity. It says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And God reveals himself on this mountain to his people over a meal. And we say, you are the one that we have waited for. It's beautiful. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers over a meal because he wants to be in relationship with them. Again, God reveals himself to us over a meal because he wants to be in relationship with us again. And I had to wait until this week to talk to you about it to show we get to the point of the reveal so you didn't forget the meal last week because they come together. You know, again, they go hand in hand. You know, and again, for us, it always does point to the idea of communion, the revelation of Jesus in our hearts and lives. But if you're kind of arty, 
I want RT with a T, not Artie, but, you know, but Artie. Um, what I want to do is show this to you in, in a couple of paintings in an artistic kind of way. In 1618, there's a Spanish artist. His name is Diego uh, Blasquez. He depicts the meal with Jesus with the two guys on the road to Emmaus when he meets them and has a meal with them after the resurrection. This is meal and reveal. Uh, the painting is called Kitchen Made with a Supper at Emmaus. Here's a picture of it. Uh, in this picture, there, in the top left corner, there's two disciples that are pictured in it. But it wants you to focus all your attention on the maid. Uh, the maid, she looks startled because she just realized as she's hearing this conversation that a previously dead man just ate her meal. She's like, what? Holy cow. And it's supposed to help you focus on the meal, the reveal, and then everything's kind of been tidied up at the end. There's a rag on the front of the table. And it's meant to see that, that if through the meal and the reveal, our lives have been washed clean. Everything is renewed. Everything is beautiful again. Now, what happens is somebody bought this painting later, and what they did is they cropped it. Look like this, right? It's like, how, yo, how nice. Someone, what, what happened was they totally cropped out Jesus in the whole meaning of the meal because like, oh, there's the maid. They're just focusing on the maid, not realizing the whole purpose of this is what's going on in the background. Now, later uh, in the 1930s, they were cleaning up this painting, and they saw the rest that was in it. And so this is kind of the restored version right here. And you can see up in the upper left-hand corner, you see one of the disciples, you see Jesus with a little look over his head, right? And then on the left, you, all you see is a little hand sitting there. Because even in the restored version, they couldn't get all the way out to get the other guy. He, he'd been cut off. And what, this is what happens in our lives all the time. By, by taking out Christ out of the meal, what we do is we just left with these rags. Because they mean nothing anymore. Food just becomes fuel. It doesn't mean all that it was supposed to mean. The understanding in our lives, it's just washing up, just left with the rags. There's so much more that's supposed to take place in a meal. Now, there's another painting on the scene to Emmaus. It's by an artist. His name is Caravaggio. It's done in 1602. It's called Mule at Emmaus. Here's the picture. Okay. Now, I think it's funny that they're all very so creative to call it Mule at Emmaus. It's like that's their creativity there. Uh, Jesus here is actually shown with, without a beard, which could be, at this time, Jesus is always shown with the beard in paintings. Now, it could be to say why they didn't recognize him at first when he's walking on the road with them, but he gets there and they don't really recognize him. And what this painting is supposed to do is capture the moment when, they, when Jesus reveals himself, when, he see, when they see who he's supposed to be. So you got this guy on the left over here, and so he's like getting out of his chair like this, like, what? No, you didn't. You know, it's like getting out of his chair. But some art historians who are also theologians look at this picture and think what he's trying to paint is this guy's actually getting up to pass his chair to you, to invite you into the painting, that, that you are invited into the scene. On the other side, you got this guy who's like this, like, what? Okay, doing that thing. And if you look, there's this bowl of fruit on the table, and it's starting to fall off the table. It's, it's painted the way that it is, and so it's getting ready to go. And so he's, so he's like, you know, like you're over dinner, you're like really excited. The fish was this big. Bam, you knock over like three glasses because you had too much wine. Okay, so, so he goes, bam, and he hits it, and the bowl of fruit sliding off the end. And it's supposed to make you want to get up and catch it before it falls off. Then you can sit in that chair. That's right there. It's really neat how they paint this thing because it wants you to come in and interact with the picture because this whole idea of the meal and the reveal is it's his invitation because a call to live life with Christ is a call to action and involvement and participation where he comes in our lives, and we are never the same again. This is what meals are meant to do. It's so much broader and wider than what we think. In one sense, throughout the scriptures, you've got creation, redemption, mission. All exists so the meal with Christ can actually take place. 
Joseph's brothers were redeemed to once again share life as a family. The Israelites were redeemed to eat with God on the mountain. And you and I are forever redeemed to share meals with each other in a community that Christ himself has revealed himself in. That's the idea. A meal, a life, a community, a mission for Jesus' name. That is what we must live within. That's what we must understand meals are meant to be. And so that is why you invite people over for meals. That is why, because Christ has revealed himself to you and I in a meal. I've been trying to do this more with my friends lately. We're always trying to find like times to get together again to eat meals because we kind of lost it over the last few months, so we're trying to do this again. You know, maybe uh, Tuesday night, Applebee's, you know, grab a flyer, go, go in there, do that. You know, you know whatever. Maybe uh, you're, a, you're a guy and, and maybe you're lonely. We'll... You know, you don't have to taste beer if you don't want beer, but we're going to eat, eat lunch today, too. Maybe you come and come and eat lunch with us today. Uh, you know, something like that. You, you get together. You start experiencing what community is supposed to be in the name of Christ because Christ has revealed himself to us. This is one of the reasons we do communion every week, that we keep coming back to this idea of communion where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine and the grape juice, remind us of his blood that was shed for you and I so we can be a people who come and understand the depth and the meaning of it. Now, a lot of times people say, you know, well, you know, if that's what it's supposed to be, why do I got these, you know, nasty little flat crackers? Well, these crackers are called matzah. And during Passover, which you kind of celebrate at communion every week, it's this idea that you move all, remove all the leaven out of your house. And this, the leaven represented sin and stuff, and so that's why you do matzah crackers when we, when we take communion, because it's this idea of a flat, uh, leavenless crackers. And it reminds us, again, of that Christ takes the sin out of our lives. So when you invite people over, it's great to have French bread, sourdough. It's all good. It doesn't have to be flat with no leaven in it. You serve good, good bread. Try tip. If you're a vegetarian, repent. <laughs> I'm not kidding. No. <laughs> God's going to serve his choice meat. What are you going to be like? What? No, Jesus, I don't eat meat. You'd be like, yeah. And you're going to think, I've wasted my life not eating meat. It's so glorious. Sorry, if you're a vegetarian, I don't even know what to say now, but whatever. You've got to understand, God is so, so good. And he makes things taste the way they do because he enjoys it when you enjoy something. So the band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you to take communion. Uh, we invite you to be some deacons and elders in the back if you need prayer for anything. Maybe you've been living your life in such a way that you just see food as fuel. And you need to repent of that. That needs to change a little bit so that you begin to live a life inviting other people into meals so you understand with them what it really is supposed to mean. If you're in a gospel community, I mean, this week, you guys need to have dinner together. And if you're already having dinner together, have another one. If you want. Whatever. Uh, there's offering boxes on the side wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship, so you have the opportunity every week. And there's some food and stuff in the back. And we do invite you guys to grab something to eat. And when you eat it and you taste it and you, when you like the taste of it, realize that is a gift from God. Things do not have to taste as good as they do, and yet they do. That's grace. And then it's, I, I told this last service and my wife just shook her head at me, but I'll tell you this service too. Um, my wife, a couple weeks ago, she was in the grocery store and on a whim she bought these new Oreos. They're simply amazing. Not just because not just they're cookies, but they're, they're these Oreos and they're dipped in like fudge and, and I love coconut and it's like coconut and stuff. They're, I, they're just amazing. And so now when everybody comes over, I'm like, have you tried these? Try it. And I start handing them out to everybody. It's like, ooh, ooh. I am sharing the grace of God. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, you may laugh, but, but that's part of what it is. When you find something that brings you great joy, you share it. 
You love, I mean, it's, that is just the awesomeness of who God is and what he has done in giving us this great thing called food and meals and allowing us to participate in community with each other through them. So I would encourage you to participate in that way with meals. Uh, our God is good, and he loves us more than we can ever imagine. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we as your people would be those who live with a deeper understanding of your calling to us in the midst of something as simple as our meals, something as practical that we have to eat so many times a day. And that we would then invite other people into those meals with us so that we could share your goodness with those around us. Father, you have been our refuge and our hope in so many ways. And so sometimes we actually forget about the simplicity of just the very basic practical things in our lives the meals and what they represent and how you have revealed yourself to us in this great idea of Passover in the Old Testament in meeting your people on the mountain at Sinai in Jesus coming and sharing the meal with his disciples all to say that this is what you intended from the very beginning that this meal in communion reminds us of who you are and when we have meals today with each other and we laugh and we cry and we argue or we you know, share whatever we have. It is the idea of a small glimpse of the greatness of eternity. That we will be a people who share in your goodness forever. And so today, help us to be a people who live lives that reflect that goodness to those we come into contact with. So that you are more lifted up and you are more known by how your people interact with the world around us so that you are seen as the God of every good gift from the simple meals that we eat to the salvation and restoration of our souls. You are the gracious and good God, and we thank you for that. Amen.